Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in and know that you are welcome. Come in and save the air cranked down to a frigid 60 degrees for the mood of the night. Be quick about it, please. Yes, yes. This is the place, the District of Wonders, Tales to Terrify. This is The Nook, and my name is Lawrence Santoro, and we have a huge and a rich show for you tonight. And if, by the way, you are here for part one of Howard P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, you're a week late. Tonight, Bob Neufeld is repoised and ready to read the second part of H.P.'s iconic tale of Antarctic exploration, paleontological nomenclature, and ancient eldritch horror. We'll be right with you, Bob. But first, to whet your appetite, we have the latest edition of Kevin Lucia's Horror 101. So, settle yourselves, pour a drink... Grab a mitten full of tasty treats, find a gloomy, shadowed recess, and snuggle with a chum. Here is Professor Lucia with Horror 101. Hell House by Richard Matheson. They started back across the entry hall, each carrying a candle in a holder. As they moved, the flickering illumination made their shadows billow on the walls and ceiling. This must be the great hall over here, said Barrett. They moved beneath an archway six feet deep and stopped, Edith and Florence gasping almost simultaneously. 
Barrett whistled softly as he raised his candle for a maximum of light. The great hall measured ninety-five by forty-seven feet. Its walls, two stories high, paneled in walnut to a height of eight feet, rough-hewn blocks of stone above. Across from where they stood was a mammoth fireplace, its mantle constructed of antique carved stone. Their furnishings were all antique, except for scattered chairs and sofas upholstered in the fashion of the twenties. Marble statues stood on pedestals in various locations. In the northwest corner was an ebony concert grand piano, and in the center of the hall stood a circular table, more than twenty feet across, with sixteen high back chairs around it and a large chandelier suspended over it. Good place to set up my equipment, Barrett thought. The hall had obviously been cleaned. He lowered his candle. Let's push on, he said. They left the great hall, moved across the entry hall, beneath the overhanging staircase, and turned right into another corridor. Several yards along its length, they reached a pair of swinging walnut doors set to their left. Barrett pushed one in and peered inside. The theater, he said. They went inside, reacting to the musty smell. The theater was designed to seat a hundred people, its walls covered with an antique red brocade, its sloping, three-aisled floor with thick red carpeting. On the stage, gilded Renaissance columns flanked the screen, and spaced along the walls were silver candelabra wired for electricity. The seats were custom-made, upholstered with wine red velvet. Just how wealthy was Belasco? Edith asked. I believe he left in excess of seven million dollars when he died, Barrett answered. Died? said Fisher. He held open one of the doors. If there's anything you care to tell us, Barrett said as he stepped in the corridor, what's to tell? The house tried to kill me, and it almost succeeded. Welcome to another edition of Horror 101 here at Tales to Terrify. Again, this is your host, Kevin Lucia, and this month we're examining some classic novels in the Haunted House Strand, and I've gathered them along a similar thread. The houses we're looking at tonight are all parasites, and like a lot of the best horror, this concept is a reversal, or an inverse, of what we know as the natural way of things. Homes are to be built for us. We are to live in them. We are to derive comfort, protection. We're to get something from our homes. We sleep in them, we cook and we eat in them, we live in them, we find shelter there. Homes, or houses, are supposed to exist for us. However, in the selections for this month's podcast, this relationship is flipped. Instead of the inhabitants benefiting from a house, the house benefits and feeds off the inhabitants. Or, in the case of Hell House, what's inside the house, which we can consider to be an extension of the house in a way, feeds off the inhabitants. Our first book for this month's podcast is The House Next Door by Anne Rivers Siddons. And one reason why this book is an excellent representation of how powerful the house motif is, is because it shows the attraction of the haunted house story to all sorts of writers, even those who would consider themselves non-horror writers. The bulk of Siddons' work represents life in the South. It's not necessarily horror fiction by any means. You could call it Southern Gothic, but it's not really horror fiction. But this is her quote-unquote Haunted House book, which, which again, it just kind of shows that power of the haunted house motif. Everyone wants to write the haunted house book. It's just kind of representative of something that's become so entrenched, you know, in our cultural and in our psyche almost. 
And in her own words, and I'm quoting this from Dance Macabre by Stephen King, uh, this is why Ann Rivers felt the desire to write a haunted house story. Quote, The haunted house has always spoken specially and directly to me as the emblem of particular horror. Maybe it's because, to a woman, her house is so much more than that. It is kingdom, responsibility, comfort, total world to her. To most of us, anyway, whether or not we are aware of it. It is an extension of ourselves. It tolls an answer to one of the most basic chords mankind will ever hear. My shelter. My earth. My second skin. Mine. So basic is it that the desecration of it, the corruption, as it were, by something alien takes on a peculiar and bone-deep horror and disgust. It is both frightening and violating, like a sly, terrible burglar. A house askew is one of the not-rightest things in the world, and is terrible out of all proportion to its actual visitant. So that in itself, a quote from Anne um, Siddons, is a very powerful quote. You know, and again, why this haunted house, or the house, or evil, or cursed house, you know, it has such a powerful motif, because that idea that house is supposed to be a place of protection, and now it is not. Uh, what also makes this novel so unique and powerful is, in itself, it flips some of the standard elements of the haunted house story. In this case, there's no haunted mansion that's been abandoned for years. There's no gothic Victorian home with moss and it's falling apart and has this grisly history behind it. In this case, this novel is about the birth of a haunted house. Land is purchased next door to our main narrators, Colquitt and Walter Kennedy, and the house is built. And right from the beginning, this house is at least shaping up to be something unique or different. And we see this in a conversation between Colquitt and the house's architect, Kim Doherty. It looks so organic or something, at least in your sketches. You wouldn't maintain a house like that. You'd feed it and water it. You'd need to give it nourishment and love to keep it alive and healthy. I think that house will bring out the best of whoever lives there. The fortunate young Harrelsons in this case, I hope they'll love it properly. I'm glad you like it, Kim said, not looking at me. I could sort of tell you did when you saw the plans, and understood it too. I've always felt that way about the design, that first you plant something. The site, the ground will tell you what to plant. You plant it, and you raise it, and the hell with what the clients say they want. The house should be its own boss, and they should live by its rules, not the other way around. It's up to them to make it grow, as you say. This house is its own boss. It does ask the best of you. So in this little clip between Colquitt and Kim Doherty as they're going over the blueprints for the house, uh, it's already intimating to us that there's something alive even about the plans about this house. And there's something mildly ominous there in that last this house is its own boss. It does ask the best of you. And here again, here's Colquitt's first impressions internally when she sees the house plans for the first time. I drew my breath at it. It was magnificent. I do not, as a rule, care for contemporary architecture, but this house was different. It commanded you somehow, yet soothed you. It grew out of the penciled earth like an elemental spirit that had lain locked and yearning for the light through endless deeps of time, waiting to be released. I could hardly imagine the hands and machinery that would form it. I thought of something that had started with a seed, put down deep roots, grown in the sun and rains of many years into the upper air. 
In the sketches, at least, the woods pressed untouched around it like companions. The creek enfolded its mass and seemed to nourish its roots. It looked inevitable. And, of course, during the construction of the house, small things seem amiss. Squirrels, other rodents, seem to be routinely massacred on the construction grounds, almost pulped and ripped apart. This, of course, is chalked up to wild dogs roaming the neighborhood. However, things get a little worse when the first owners, the Harrelsons, come by one day to check progress of the house. The dog gets loose, goes missing, and is also eventually killed on the grounds by this wild animal or wild dog that's roaming around. Unfortunately, things escalate when one day toward the end of the house's construction, young and pregnant Pye Harrelson, the young wife, falls down the stairs into the basement, miscarriages, and loses her baby. So you can say that the house tastes blood for the first time, and its taste grows. But not just blood. Kim Dougherty's prediction that the house asks the best of you rings truer than anyone could possibly ever believe. Except, in essence, the house wants the best from you and takes it from you. Throughout the course of the novel, the house exploits weaknesses, it feeds off insecurities, and turns these things against all the inhabitants of the house. It manipulates them, it plays with their fears, and also, like any good horror novel that's going to kind of rise above the tropes, this is the novel's avenue for making it more than just a novel about a scary house. Because all of these things are deep human weaknesses. You know, these are the things that we all fear, these are the things that we struggle with, social fears and fears of our reputation and embarrassment. So, in the house feeding off of people's weaknesses and insecurities, it opens up the book to wider social commentary and social concern. Again, elevating it over it, ooh, just a spooky house book. And also along the way, Anne River Siddons is remaining true to her, I don't know if I say her genre, but her motifs. She's also writing about the Southern culture, even in this novel. Because in polite Southern society, there are just some things that aren't talked about, right? They're verboten. We don't speak of these in public. We keep a polite veneer over everything, where everything's very cultured, very refined. There are things we don't discuss. And as the families continue to fall into ruin, in that house next door, everyone in this small community, which is a nice, slightly upscale community, everyone refuses to acknowledge that anything strange is happening. And when Colquitt and her husband finally stop pretending that nothing is going on, after she, Kim, and Walter, her husband, almost fall prey to it themselves, she's then ostracized from polite society, even some of her lifelong friends, for daring to speak out or for daring to say that something is wrong, even though it's something everyone in this community knows subconsciously. So again, it's not just a haunted house novel, but it's commenting on that whole rigid, you know, let's not talk about unpleasant things in public, because we would hate to do that. Throughout the course of this novel, three families are destroyed, or or consumed, or they're beaten down by this house. The Harrelsons are obsessed with social standing and their reputation, so the house attacks this, destroys the reputation entirely. The next family, the Sheehans, lost a son in the Vietnam War, and Mrs. Sheehan has had several breakdowns over it. Nightmares, hallucinations, seeing things. 
So the house takes advantage of this as well, because she starts getting phantom phone calls from her dead son, seeing images of burning helicopters crashing on TV, which is how her son died. The final family, the Greens, are headed by a militaristic, domineering husband that must have everything just so. Life has to be perfect. So you can imagine know how the house is going to take advantage of that. Another curious factor running alongside is the fact that the architect, Kim Doherty, has been unable to design anything at all since completing that house. And he becomes obsessed with the notion that the house itself has sapped him of his ability to design. That it's not only taken the best from the people who live there, it's taken the best from the person who designs it. And after he and Colcott and Walter experienced their near-fatal moment in the house, he flees to Europe for several months, trying to find himself, trying to tour around the countries over in Europe, only to come back married and to be the house's final victim, despite Walter and Colcott's protests buying the house that he built, because it is, of course, his. He built it. I am now going to live here. And of course, that puts them him in direct opposition with Walter and Colquitt because they have become determined at this point to end the house's reign of terror. But they've also realized, in a mild spoiler, they've come to believe that if the house indeed was planted like a seed and has grown into something malignant, what planted it in the first place? And again, Southern Gothic writer, not horror writer that she may be, Anne River Siddons knows her haunted house motif well. Because after everything is done, this is how the novel closes out for us. At the very end, after the house is, you know, after all the action has been completed, the house has been destroyed, some unusual blueprints are discovered in somebody's files, and this is what we're presented with. Isn't it super, said the girl. It's just exactly what I've always wanted, right down to the ground. I didn't even know exactly what I wanted until I saw it, and that was just it. Even with all the looking we've done, we'd never have thought of building a house if these plans hadn't just fallen into our hands. We got them from this young architect Peter knows. His partner did them, oh, some time ago, I guess when he was in Europe. I don't know who he was or is. Peter's friend said he died not too long ago. Isn't that awful? The guy didn't say how, and since it was so recent, we didn't want to ask. Anyway, this Frank somebody, Peter's friend, said when he heard Peter talking about the house we've been looking for, he remembered these plans and he dug them out of his files. I don't know if the guy had ever done another house or not, but he would have been a dynamite architect if he'd lived. Just look at it. It looks like it's growing right up out of the ground, doesn't it? It looks like it's alive. Our next novel, Burnt Offerings by Rob Morasco, is another twist on this house is a parasite feeding off its inhabitants. And I have to say, by far, it's one of the most subtle, restrained novels I've read yet in this haunted house strand. Indeed, for a good stretch of the novel, if you weren't already aware that you were reading a horror novel, you know, based on the spooky cover with, like, the doorknob that looks like it's a head turning and looking at you, you might think in the very beginning, this is just a story about a marriage that's falling apart, you know, under stress. Marion and Ben Wolf and their son David live in Queens, New York. Ben teaches high school English, and Marion is a dedicated, committed, maybe mildly obsessive housekeeper. And she hates the city. She hates the noise. She hates the crowding and the pollution and the sound. And when she finds an ad in the paper at the end of the school year for a summer home for rent out in the country, 
She's desperate to give it a try. And even though he's reluctant, she eventually convinces Ben to make the trip and check out the house. When they find the house, they're amazed to find not a cabin or a small summer home, but a moderately dilapidated but serviceable mansion that could be beautiful with just a little bit of fixing up. And because they are, in the words of the house's owners, the Alderdices, the right kind of people, they get it for the whole summer at the unbelievable cost of only $900. Of course, there is a catch, as there always is. One, they must fix the house up, maintain it, repair it, or in their words, care for the place. Which, of course, proves to be just the thing for our meticulous housekeeper, Marion. The other catch is they must care for the owner's mother, who they only ever call our darling, a recluse who resides in a perpetually shut room on the top floor. And it shouldn't be that much trouble, because you won't ever really even see her. You just have to leave food for her three times a day in her parlor room. Eventually, Marion is able to move Ben past his objections and his arguments against it. And soon, them, their son David, and their Aunt Elizabeth end up moving into the house to stay there for the summer. And of course, right away, at least we, the readers, notice several odd things. First of all, the parlor room outside Darling's bedroom is populated with hundreds of photographs that seem to go back for decades of just these random people. But it's strange that they all sit very emotionless in these portraits, almost kind of like they're mannequins. Secondly, there's this really odd and disturbing incident between David and his father, Ben, in the pool. The roughhousing, suddenly it becomes strangely, oddly violent, and Ben becomes very distant and cruel, and almost drowns David, horrifying Aunt Elizabeth, um, and kind of shocking both of them. And also, too, a very quick distance begins growing between Marion and Ben. Uh, one of their first nights there, he tries to be intimate with her, and at first she doesn't want him to, and then it just becomes a very painful, unpleasant experience. And this is upsetting for Marion in a way, because she's never experienced anything unpleasant with Ben, but also she still just has no inclination to be a wife to him at all. And of course, as the story continues, things worsen. For the family, that is. Because oddly enough, as Ben and Marion grow more distant, Marion becomes more distant from David. She becomes more obsessive with cleaning the mansion, hardly ever going outside, obsessed with what she thinks is a humming noise she hears coming from our darling's room. As David becomes more distant from them, as Aunt Elizabeth's health starts strangely deteriorating right between before their eyes, strangely, the house seems to look better, cleaner, newer, shinier, as time passes. The pool, which was broken, and the, the, the pump was broken, and the filter is broken, is automatically, miraculously fixed. Okay, things around the house, like the trees and the grass, seem to improve the longer they are there. Of course, we can probably guess the outcome. Ben and Marion drift further and further apart, Marion becoming increasingly obsessed with the house, choosing it over her family. Aunt Elizabeth becomes sicker and sicker, and eventually she just dies. David almost dies also, 
When someone or something sneaks into his room at night, twists off the gas valve in his heater, lets the gas out, and he almost dies of gas poisoning. At the end, when the family is consumed, Marion gives herself up to Darling going into her room. And as she's waiting there to go into Darling's room, she notes that Ben and David's emotionless portraits have taken their place alongside all the other portraits. And when the owners, the Allardyces, finally return home and walk around the grounds, they think this. They went with silent reverence through all the rooms of their mother's house, which had never looked so rich and shining and perfect. Not since last time, anyway, brother said in his wheelchair. They traveled over the grounds, as much of them as they could cover in a single day. The trees and shrubs were full, the grass the deepest green, and the house shone white and immaculate on the hill. And again, this novel is so very, very restrained, because that's the all the intimation, the, the only hint that we're given, that it hasn't looked so nearly as wonderful, not since last time. Anyway, so we get the idea that many summer residents have helped restore this guest house. Our final novel of this month's podcast is Hell House by Richard Matheson. And in this case, it's not so much the house that consumed, but the thing that is inside of the house that consumes. And what I found interesting while reading this novel is that in many ways, it's an inverse of its predecessor, House on Haunted Hill. Like House on Haunted Hill, we have a researcher who brings a team of psychic investigators into experience phenomena. However, this book is flipped. In House on Haunted Hill, we are not shown anything. It's very psychological. It's very tense, very atmospheric, and the entity in the house simply just wants to be left alone. Hell House in some ways, reflects... Um, and I hope I'm not making too much of a reach here. Hell House is that idea, but it reflects uh, the emerging uh, feeling of the 70s horror cinema. This house doesn't want to scare you away. It wants to brutalize you, manipulate you, torture you, and destroy you in every fashion it possibly can imagine. And it's brutal and violent, um, and it's a destructive force. So it's interesting. It's the same setup of ha- House on Haunted Hill, but it's a complete flip of it in many ways. So in House and Haunted Hill, a Dr. Barrett leads a team consisting of his wife Edith and two noted mediums, Benjamin Fisher and Florence Tanner, into Hell House to prove or disprove the afterlife. You know, because a, a wealthy, dying financier wants to know if there's life after death, so he's, you know, put of the bill for this thing. And also, very similar to a book that we examined earlier in this house strand, The House and the Brain, Dr. Barrett does believe in supernatural phenomena. He believes in residual psychic energy causing manifestations which are confused as hauntings. He doesn't believe in ghosts. He doesn't believe in spirits. But he does believe that there's something there causing those manifestations. And he is in the process of writing a book about this, and he's brought along a device, or he's going to have a device shortly delivered, that he believes will charge the atmosphere, kind of polarize the energies, and negate whatever is causing these manifestations, clearing the house through scientific means. And of course, as you've probably already guessed, or if you've already read it, Dr. Barrett is not quite as right as he thinks he is. He's wrong. So, Alaska House, or Hell House, as it's been called, was inhabited by a depraved man 
who threw parties uh, that featured orgies, drugs, devil worship, cannibalism, murder, and hundreds of souls died horrible deaths inside this house. And the perpetrator of the horrors, Emmerich Belasco, who apparently has been evil ever since he was a kid and started torturing you know, cats and stuff, he disappeared. No one ever discovered his body. So that, of course, lends to the legends that he is there continuing to haunt the premises. And again, kind of as an inverse of House of Haunted Hill, the house's attacks are sadistic and physically and sexually traumatic, possessing people, causing them to do things they would never do, much more violent than the psychologically harrowing Hill House. And whereas Hill House wanted to be left alone, Belasco House wants to destroy anyone who steps foot into it. And as they did formally, Benjamin Fisher was the only survivor of a previous investigation where everyone was killed except for him. He was found, like, curled in a fetal ball, shivering on the porch, naked. This house proceeds to dismantle this current investigating team, uh, destroying Frances um, after possessing her, toying with Edith, and... Even with Dr. Barrett, Dr. Barrett has his machine, he turns it on, the spirit in Belasco House toys with him, makes him look like he's succeeded, then, after physically tormenting him, killing him as well. Now, an interesting case to the resolution of this novel is, again, Benjamin Fisher is one of our main characters who is the only survivor of Hill House. So right there, that's special to us, right? He's the one that got away. But throughout the whole novel, he has kept himself closed off from the house. While the other medium, Frances, kind of foolishly opens herself up to everything there and wants to engage and cleanse the house, Benjamin has held himself kind of in reserve. And I think that's because he alone understands what Belasco House is capable of from the very beginning. And because he closes himself off, he's able to withstand Belasco House until the very last moment. And he is key to destroying uh, the influence there because we discover that it is Belasco's spirit. And also, kind of in a nod, maybe maybe not, to the house and the brain, after they've defeated Belasco, which turns out just be him, not these crowds of ghosts, just him, they discover in the chapel a secret compartment with a withered corpse sitting in a wheelchair. And this is Belasco, who apparently had walled himself in to watch the rest of the people in the house go insane, and he died there. And they also discover that perhaps there was some validity to the idea that psychic phenomena can be reversed by scientific means, because, or at the very least, he may have been worried about this, because the entire room that the corpse is found in, the walls are lined with lead to apparently protect against some sort of technological or scientific incursion. So it's interesting at the end that Belasco, even before he died, planning to haunt the house himself, feared that there would be a way to eradicate his spirit. So in essence, if the body hadn't been housed in a room full of lead, Dr. Barrett might have, might, might have very well succeeded. And this concludes another edition of Horror 101. 
I, once again, your host, Kevin Lucia, thank you for listening in. And tonight's Horror 101 recommends uh, the Sam Hain Horror line. The first one is Dark Inspiration by Russell James. Uh, it's kind of a classic novel. Guy who wants to be a writer relocates to a house with a macabre history, ends up delving into some things he shouldn't, and of course, this gives him dark inspiration. Our second recommendation is someone who we've recommended frequently here because he's written a series of um, successful haunting or house, you know, evil house novels, and that's House of Skin by Jonathan Jans. Now, this is almost a perfect modern spin on Hell House. Very similar idea of a house that had seen degradation, uh, especially the sexual degradation, now living inside the walls of the house. The, I think it was either Publishers Weekly or someone else that said that house was like reminiscent of The, ha- uh, the Haunting by Shirley Jackson. Really, I found it more reminiscent of Hell House by Richard Matheson. But those are our two recommended reads for this evening. Once again, I thank you for listening. If you have a chance, add us on Facebook at Studying Horror. Okay, That is our Facebook uh, group name. Thank you again. You can keep reading. Confound you, Kevin. You just cost me another $9.17 for the house next door. Yes, well, I look forward to spending more money next month. You can catch up with Kevin, as he mentioned, on Facebook, or just keep abreast of his efforts at http colon slash slash www.kevinlucia.com. And, of course, that's on our homepage. And now, fiction. Previously on At the Mountains of Madness, Miskatonic University's geology professor emeritus, Dr. William Dyer, is disturbed to learn that his university is about to return to the South Pole and recommence exploration deep into the heart of the Antarctic continent, The professor is determined that this shall not happen. He knows too much of what is buried there. He tells his story. Years before, Dr. Dyer headed a well-founded, well-funded team from Miskatonic U, two ships, five planes, state-of-the-art drilling equipment, dozens of men, dogs, sledges, et al. They penetrated deep into the mysteries of the polar lands, and discovered a range of mountains that dwarf the Himalayas. There, they found a wealth of fossils from the Earth's earliest age, a fossil record so rich and complex, replete with specimens never before seen, that even on cursory examination they call into question everything that is known about life on Earth. Professor Dyer tells us that an advance camp set up by one Professor Lake at the foot of the mountains found the remains of 14 ancient, well, what are they? Vegetables? Creatures? Whatever they are, they are completely unknown to science and unidentifiable. 
Six of the specimens are badly damaged. The others, pristine, oddly shaped, twenty-five tentacled, starfish-headed, winged creatures. Needless to say, Professor Lake's sled dogs do not like these hideous specimens. As Professor Lake radios his descriptions, coolly, scientifically, he begins to realize that the complete specimens have such uncanny resemblance to certain creatures of primal myth. Dyer and Pebody have read the Necronomicon and seen Clark Ashton Smith's nightmare paintings based on that text, and they'll understand when I speak of elder things, which are supposed to have created all earth life as as a jest or a mistake. They are also like prehistoric folklore things, Cthulhu cult appendages, and so forth. Lake's report finishes with, If this isn't the high spot of the expedition, I don't know what is. We are made scientifically. Well, despite the fact that the fossil and the still-fresh, non-fossilized remains of these things belong to a very early geologic time, perhaps millions of years old. They show features and physical attributes that might belong to well, far more advanced forms of life. They probably had more than five senses, the professor reports. Then, weather intervenes. Lake's party is forced to batten down for a time. When the weather clears... Dyer and nine others, including a graduate student by the name of Danforth, fly to Lake's camp. Professor Dyer tells us, Every incident of that four-and-a-half-hour flight is burned into my recollection because of its crucial position in my life. It marked my loss, at the age of fifty-four, of all that peace and balance which the normal mind possesses through its accustomed conception of external nature and nature's laws. Thenceforward, the ten of us, but the student Danforth and myself above all others, were to face a hideously amplified world of lurking horrors which nothing can erase from our emotions— and which we would refrain from sharing with mankind in general, if we could. As they approach their goal, the vast mountain skyline looms ahead, at the base of which is Lake's camp. The mountains begin to stir a dread in Dyer. He sees their odd shapes and the structures of their slopes as more like some cyclopean city of no architecture known to man or to human imagination. He calls the range the Mountains of Madness. As they grow nearer, the mountains' hideous shapes begin to dissolve into the icy mists and resolve themselves as might an arctic mirage. When they arrive at Lake's camp, they find a slaughter yard, men and dogs torn apart, equipment destroyed, oddly more disassembled than smashed, and all the intact specimens Lake reported on gone, buried, oddly buried, leaving only a few fragments, fragments which confirm Lake's descriptions. Also one man named Gedney and a dog 
are unaccounted for. These horrific discoveries force the party to censor its reports to the outside world. The deaths are attributed to weather. They report the bodies are so mangled by the wind as to render them unfit for transport. Professor Dyer tells us he would not speak more on the matter now were it not for the need to warn the world that it must not return to this place. The expedition retreats to the ships and returns home. Their stories are carefully guarded. Danforth, Dyer tells us, has had a breakdown. He claims to have seen something about which he has never spoken, will never speak, not to anyone, not even to Dyer. We learn that all survivors would have kept quiet about it, about it all, about what really happened during their longer-than-reported, carefully-censored visit to Lake's camp, and about the further explorations made by Dyer and Danforth into the depth of the horrors that abounded there. But now, we are told, at the conclusion of last week's episode, the Starkweather-Moore party is organizing... If not dissuaded, they will get to the innermost nucleus of the Antarctic and melt and bore till they bring up that which we know may end the world. So I must break through all reticence at last, even about that ultimate nameless thing beyond the mountains of madness. Now, here is part two of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Chapter 4 It is only with vast hesitancy and repugnance that I let my mind go back to Lake's camp and what we really found there, and to that other thing beyond the mountains of madness. I am constantly tempted to shirk the details and to let hints stand for actual facts and ineluctable deductions. I hope I have said enough already to let me glide briefly over the rest, the rest, that is, of the horror at the camp. I have told of the wind-ravaged terrain, the damaged shelters, the disarranged machinery, the varied uneasiness of our dogs, the missing sledges and other items, the deaths of men and dogs, the absence of Gedney, and the six insanely buried biological specimens strangely sound in texture for all their structural injuries, from a world forty million years dead. I do not recall whether I mentioned that upon checking up on the canine bodies we found one dog missing. We did not think much about that till later. Indeed, only Danforth and I have thought of it at all. The principal things I have been keeping back relate to the bodies and to certain subtle points which may or may not lend a hideous and incredible kind of rationale to the apparent chaos. At the time, I tried to keep the men's minds off those points, 
for it was so much simpler, so much more normal, to lay everything to an outbreak of madness on the part of some of Lake's party. From the look of things, that demon mountain wind must have been enough to drive any man mad in the midst of this center of all earthly mystery and desolation. The crowning abnormality, of course, was the condition of the bodies, men and dogs alike. They had all been in some terrible kind of conflict, and were torn and mangled in fiendish and altogether inexplicable ways. Death, so far as we could judge, had in each case come from strangulation or laceration. The dogs had evidently started the trouble, for the state of their ill-built corral bore witness to its forcible breakage from within. It had been set some distance from the camp because of the hatred of the animals for those hellish Archean organisms, but the precaution seemed to have been taken in vain. When left alone in that monstrous wind, behind flimsy walls of insufficient height, they must have stampeded, whether from the wind itself or from some subtle increasing odor emitted by the nightmare specimens, one could not say. But whatever had happened, it was hideous and revolting enough. Perhaps I had better put squeamishness aside and tell the worst at last, though with a categorical statement of opinion, based on the first-hand observations and most rigid deductions of both Danforth and myself, that the then-missing Gedney was in no way responsible for the loathsome horrors we found. I have said that the bodies were frightfully mangled. Now I must add that some were incised and subtracted from in the most curious, cold-blooded, and inhuman fashion. It was the same with dogs and men. All the healthier, fatter bodies, quadrupedal and bipedal, had had their most solid masses of tissue cut out and removed, as by a careful butcher, and around them was a strange sprinkling of salt taken from the ravaged provision chests on the plains, which conjured up the most horrible associations. The thing had occurred in one of the crude aeroplane shelters from which the plane had been dragged out, and subsequent winds had effaced all tracks which could have supplied any plausible theory. Scattered bits of clothing, roughly slashed from the human incision subjects, hinted no clues. It is useless to bring up the half-impression of certain faint snow prints in one shielded corner of the ruined enclosure, because that impression did not concern human prints at all, but was clearly mixed up with all the talk of fossil prints which poor Lake had been giving throughout the preceding weeks. One had to be careful of one's imagination in the lee of these overshadowing mountains of madness. As I have indicated, Gadney and one dog turned out to be missing in the end. When we came on that terrible shelter, we had missed two dogs and two men, but the fairly unharmed dissecting tent, which we entered after investigating the monstrous graves, had something to reveal. It was not as Lake had left it, for the covered parts of the primal monstrosity had been removed from the improvised table. Indeed, we had already realized that one of the six imperfect and insanely buried things we had found, the one with a trace of the peculiarly hateful odor, must represent the collected sections of the entity which Lake had tried to analyze. 
On and around that laboratory table were strewn other things, and it did not take long for us to guess that those things were the carefully, though oddly and inexpertly dissected parts of one man and one dog. I shall spare the feelings of survivors by omitting mention of the man's identity. Lake's anatomical instruments were missing, but there were evidences of their careful cleaning. The gasoline stove was also gone, though around it we found a curious litter of matches. We buried the human parts beside the other ten men, and the canine parts with the other thirty-five dogs. Concerning the bizarre smudges on the laboratory table, and on the jumble of roughly handled illustrated books scattered near it, we were much too bewildered to speculate. This formed the worst of the camp horror. But other things were equally perplexing. The disappearance of Gedney, the one dog, the eight uninjured biological specimens, the three sledges, and certain instruments, illustrated technical and scientific books, writing materials, electric torches and batteries, food and fuel, heating apparatus, spare tents, fur suits, and the like, was utterly beyond sane conjecture as were likewise the spatter-fringed ink-blots on certain pieces of paper, and the evidences of curious alien fumbling and experimentation around the planes and all other mechanical devices, both at the camp and at the boring. The dogs seemed to abhor this oddly disordered machinery. Then, too, there was the upsetting of the larder, the disappearance of certain staples, and the jarringly comical heap of tin cans— pried open in the most unlikely ways and at the most unlikely places. The profusion of scattered matches, intact, broken, or spent, formed another minor enigma, as did the two or three tent-cloths and fur-suits, which we found lying about with peculiar and unorthodox slashings, conceivably due to clumsy efforts at unimaginable adaptations. The maltreatment of the human and canine bodies, and the crazy burial of the damaged Archean specimens, were all of a piece with this apparent disintegrative madness. In view of just such an eventuality as the present one, we carefully photographed all the main evidences of insane disorder at the camp, and shall use the prince to buttress our pleas against the departure of the proposed Starkweather-Moor expedition. Our first act, after finding the bodies in the shelter, was to photograph and open the row of insane graves with the five-pointed snow-mounds. We could not help noticing the resemblance of these monstrous mounds, with their clusters of group dots, to poor Lake's descriptions of the strange greenish substones, and when we came on some of the substones themselves in the great mineral pile, we found the likeness very close indeed. The whole general formation, it must be made clear, seemed abominably suggestive of the starfish head of the Archean entities, and we agreed that the suggestion must have worked potently upon the sensitized minds of Lake's overwrought party. For madness, centering in Gedney as the only possible surviving agent, was the explanation spontaneously adopted by everybody, so far as spoken utterance was concerned though I will not be so naive as to deny that each of us may have harbored wild guesses which sanity forbade him to formulate completely. 
Sherman, Pabody, and McTighe made an exhaustive aeroplane cruise over all the surrounding territory in the afternoon, sweeping the horizon with field glasses in quest of Gedney and of the various missing things. But nothing came to light. The party reported that the Titan barrier range extended endlessly to right and left alike without any diminution in height or essential structure. On some of the peaks, though, the regular cube and rampart formations were bolder and plainer, having doubly fantastic similitudes to Rorick-painted Asian hill ruins. The distribution of cryptical cave mouths on the black snow-denuded summits seemed roughly even as far as the range could be traced. In spite of all the prevailing horrors, we were left with enough sheer scientific zeal and adventurousness to wonder about the unknown realm beyond those mysterious mountains. As our guarded messages stated, we rested at midnight after our day of terror and bafflement, but not without a tentative plan for one or more range-crossing altitude flights in a lightened plane with aerial camera and geologist's outfit, beginning the following morning. It was decided that Danforth and I try at first, and we awaked at 7 a.m., intending an early flight. However, heavy winds, mentioned in our brief bulletin to the outside world, delayed our start till nearly nine o'clock. I have already repeated the non-committal story we told the men at camp, and relayed outside, after our return sixteen hours later. It is now my terrible duty to amplify this account— by filling in the merciful blanks with hints of what we really saw in the hidden transmontane world, hints of the revelations which have finally driven Danforth to a nervous collapse. I wish he would add a really frank word about the thing which he thinks he alone saw, even though it was probably a nervous delusion, and which was perhaps the last straw that put him where he is, but he is firm against that. All I can do is to repeat his later disjointed whispers about what set him shrieking as the plane soared back through the wind-tortured mountain pass after the real and tangible shock which I shared. This will for my last word. If the plain signs of surviving elder horrors in what I disclose be not enough to keep others from meddling with the inner Antarctic, or at least from prying too deeply beneath the surface of that ultimate waste of forbidden secrets and inhuman, eon-cursed desolation, the responsibility for unnameable and perhaps immeasurable evils will not be mine. Danforth and I, studying the notes made by Pabody in his afternoon flight and checking up with a sextant, had calculated that the lowest available pass in the range lay somewhat to the right of us, within sight of camp, and about twenty-three thousand or twenty-four thousand feet above sea level. For this point, then, we first headed in the lightened plain as we embarked on our flight of discovery. The camp itself, on the foothills which sprang from a high continental plateau, was some twelve thousand feet in altitude. Hence the actual height increase necessary was not so vast as it might seem. Nevertheless, we were acutely conscious of the rarefied air and intense cold as we rose. 
for on account of visibility conditions we had to leave the cabin windows open. We were dressed, of course, in our heaviest furs. As we drew near the forbidding peaks, dark and sinister above the line of crevasse-riven snow and interstitial glaciers, we noticed more and more the curiously regular formations clinging to the slopes, and thought again of the strange Asian paintings of Nicholas Rurich. The ancient and wind-weathered rock strata fully verified all of Lake's bulletins, and proved that these pinnacles had been towering up in exactly the same way since a surprisingly early time in Earth's history, perhaps over fifty million years. How much higher they had once been, it was futile to guess. But everything about this strange region pointed to obscure atmospheric influences unfavorable to change, and calculated to retard the usual climatic processes of rock disintegration. But it was the mountainside tangle of regular cubes, ramparts, and cave mouths which fascinated and disturbed us most. I studied them with a field glass and took aerial photographs while Danforth drove, and at times I relieved him at the controls, though my aviation knowledge was purely an amateur's, in order to let him use the binoculars. We could easily see that much of the material of the things was a lightish archaean quartzite, unlike any formation visible over broad areas of the general surface, and that their regularity was extreme and uncanny to an extent which poor Lake had scarcely hinted. As he had said, their edges were crumbled and rounded from untold eons of savage weathering, but their preternatural solidity and tough material had saved them from obliteration. Many parts, especially those closest to the slopes, seemed identical in substance with the surrounding rock surface. The whole arrangement looked like the ruins of Machu Picchu in the Andes, or the primal foundation walls of Kish, as dug up by the Oxford Field Museum expedition in 1929 and both Danforth and I obtained that occasional impression of separate Cyclopean blocks, which Lake had attributed to his flight companion Carroll. How to account for such things in this place was frankly beyond me, and I felt queerly humbled as a geologist. Igneous formations often have strange regularities, like the famous Giant's Causeway in Ireland, but this stupendous range, despite Lake's original suspicion of smoking cones, was above all else non-volcanic in evidence structure. The curious cave mouths, near which the odd formation seemed most abundant, presented another, albeit a lesser, puzzle, because of their regularity of outline. They were, as Lake's bulletin had said, often approximately square or semicircular, as if the natural orifices had been shaped to greater symmetry by some magic hand. Their numerousness and wide distribution were remarkable, and suggested that the whole region was honeycombed with tunnels dissolved out of limestone strata. Such glimpses as we secured did not extend far within the caverns, but we saw that they were apparently clear of stalactites and stalagmites. Outside, those parts of the mountain slopes adjoining the apertures seemed invariably smooth and regular, and Danforth thought that the slight cracks and pittings of the weathering tended toward unusual patterns. 
Filled as he was with the horrors and strangenesses discovered at the camp, he hinted that the pittings vaguely resembled those baffling groups of dots sprinkled over the primeval greenish soapstones so hideously duplicated on the madly conceived snow mounds above those six buried monstrosities. We had risen gradually in flying over the higher foothills and along toward the relatively low pass we had selected. As we advanced, we occasionally looked down at the snow and ice of the land route, wondering whether we could have attempted the trip with the simpler equipment of earlier days. Somewhat to our surprise, we saw that the terrain was far from difficult as such things go, and that despite the crevasses and other bad spots, it would not have been likely to deter the sledges of a Scott, a Shackleton, or an Amundsen. Some of the glaciers appeared to lead up to wind-bared passes with unusual continuity, and upon reaching our chosen pass, we found that its case formed no exception. Our sensations of tense expectancy, as we prepared to round the crest and peer out over an untrodden world, can hardly be described on paper. Even though we had no cause to think the regions beyond the range essentially different from those already seen and traversed. The touch of evil mystery in these barrier mountains and in the beckoning sea of opalescent sky glimpsed betwixt their summits was a highly subtle and attenuated matter not to be explained in literal words. Rather was it an affair of vague psychological symbolism and aesthetic association a thing mixed up with exotic poetry and paintings, and with archaic myths lurking in shunned and forbidden volumes. Even the wind's burden held a peculiar strain of conscious malignity, and for a second it seemed that the composite sound included a bizarre musical whistling or piping over a wide range as the blast swept in and out of the omnipresent and resonant cave-mouths. There was a cloudy note of reminiscent repulsion in this sound, as complex and unplaceable as any of the other dark impressions. We were now, after a slow ascent, at a height of 23,570 feet, according to the aneroid, and had left the region of clinging snow definitely below us. Up here were only dark, bare rock slopes, and the start of rough-ribbed glaciers, but with those provocative cubes, ramparts, and echoing cave-mouths to add a portent of the unnatural, the fantastic, and the dreamlike. Looking along the line of high peaks, I thought I could see the one mentioned by poor Lake, with a rampart exactly on top. It seemed to be half lost in a queer Antarctic haze, such a haze, perhaps, as has been responsible for Lake's early notion of volcanism. The pass loomed directly before us, smooth and windswept between its jagged and malignly frowning pylons. Beyond it was a sky fretted with swirling vapors and lighted by the low polar sun, the sky of that mysterious farther realm upon which we felt no human eye had ever gazed. A few more feet of altitude, and we would behold that realm. Danforth and I, unable to speak except in shouts amidst the howling, piping wind that raced through the pass and added to the noise of the unmuffled engines, exchanged eloquent glances. 
and then, having gained those last few feet, we did indeed stare across the momentous divide and over the unsampled secrets of an elder and utterly alien earth. Chapter 5 I think that both of us simultaneously cried out in mixed awe, wonder, terror, and disbelief in our own senses, as we finally cleared the pass and saw what lay beyond. Of course, we must have had some natural theory in the back of our heads to steady our faculties for the moment. Probably we thought of such things as the grotesquely weathered stones of the Garden of the Gods in Colorado, or the fantastically symmetrical wind-carved rocks of the Arizona desert. Perhaps we even half thought the sight of mirage, like that we had seen the morning before on first approaching these mountains of madness. We must have had some such normal notions to fall back upon as our eyes swept that limitless, tempest-scarred plateau and grasped the almost endless labyrinth of colossal, regular, and geometrically eurythmic stone masses which reared their crumbled and pitted crests above a glacial sheet not more than forty or fifty feet deep at its thickest, and in places obviously thinner. The effect of the monstrous sight was indescribable, for some fiendish violation of no natural law seemed certain at the outset. Here, on a hellishly ancient tableland fully twenty thousand feet high, and in a climate deadly to habitation since a pre-human age not less than five hundred thousand years ago, there stretched nearly to the vision's limit a tangle of orderly stone, which only the desperation of mental self-defense could possibly attribute to any but conscious and artificial cause. We had previously dismissed, as far as any serious thought was concerned, any theory that the cubes and ramparts of the mountainsides were other than natural in origin. How could they be otherwise, when man himself could scarcely have been differentiated from the great apes at the time, when this region succumbed to the present unbroken reign of glacial death? Yet now the sway of reason seemed irrefutably shaken, for this cyclopean maze of squared, curved, and angled blocks had features which cut off all comfortable refuge. It was, very clearly, the blasphemous city of the mirage in stark, objective, and ineluctable reality. That damnable portent had had a material basis after all. There had been some horizontal stratum of the ice dust in the upper air, and this shocking stone survival had projected its image across the mountains according to the simple laws of reflection. Of course, the phantom had been twisted and exaggerated, and had contained things which the real source did not contain. Yet now, as we saw that real source, we thought it even more hideous and menacing than its distant image. Only the incredible, unhuman massiveness of these vast stone towers and ramparts had saved the frightful things from utter annihilation in the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of years it had brooded there amidst the blasts of a bleak upland. 
Corona Mundi, Roof of the World, all sorts of fantastic phrases sprang to our lips as we looked dizzily down at the unbelievable spectacle. I thought again of the eldritch primal myths that had so persistently haunted me since my first sight of this dread Antarctic world, of the demoniac plateau of Lang, of the Maigo, or abominable snowmen of the Himalayas, of the narcotic manuscripts with their pre-human implications, of the Cthulhu cults, of the Necronomicon, and of the Hyperborean legends of formless Tsathogwa, and the worse-than-formless star-spawn associated with that semi-entity. For boundless miles in every direction the thing stretched off with very little thinning. Indeed, as our eyes followed it to the right and left along the base of the low, gradual foothills which separated it from the actual mountain rim, we decided that we could see no thinning at all except for an interruption at the left of the pass through which we had come. We had merely struck, at random, a limited part of something of incalculable extent. The foothills were more sparsely sprinkled with grotesque stone structures, linking the terrible city to the already familiar cubes and ramparts which evidently formed its mountain outposts. These latter, as well as the queer cave mouths, were as thick on the inner as on the outer sides of the mountains. The nameless stone labyrinth consisted for the most part of walls from ten to one hundred and fifty feet in ice-clear height, and of a thickness varying from five to ten feet. It was composed mostly of prodigious blocks of dark primordial slate, schist, and sandstone, blocks in many cases as large as four by six by eight feet, though in several places it seemed to be carved out of a solid, uneven bedrock of pre-Cambrian slate. The buildings were far from equal in size, there being innumerable honeycomb arrangements of enormous extent as well as smaller separate structures. The general shape of these things tended to be conical, pyramidal, or terraced, How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Though there were many perfect cylinders, perfect cubes, clusters of cubes, and other rectangular forms, and a peculiar sprinkling of angled edifices, whose five-point ground plan roughly suggested modern fortifications. The builders had made constant and expert use of the principle of the arch, and domes had probably existed in the city's heyday. The whole tangle was monstrously weathered, and the glacial surface from which the towers projected was strewn with fallen blocks and immemorial debris. Where the glaciation was transparent, we could see the lower parts of the gigantic piles, and we noticed the ice-preserved stone bridges which connected the different towers at varying distances above the ground. On the exposed walls we could detect the scarred places where other and higher bridges of the same sort had existed. Closer inspection revealed countless largish windows, some of which were closed with shutters of a petrified material, originally wood, though most gaped open in a sinister and menacing fashion. Many of the ruins, of course, were roofless, and with uneven, though wind-rounded upper edges, whilst others, of a more sharply conical or pyramidal model, or else protected by higher surrounding structures, preserved intact outlines despite the omnipresent crumbling and pitting. With the field glass we could barely make out what seemed to be sculptural decorations in horizontal bands, decorations including those curious groups of dots, whose presence on the ancient soapstones now assumed a vastly larger significance. In many places the buildings were totally ruined, and the ice-sheet deeply riven from various geologic causes. In other places the stonework was worn down to the very level of the glaciation. One broad swath, extending from the plateau's interior to a cleft in the foothills about a mile to the left of the pass we had traversed, was wholly free from buildings. It probably represented, we concluded, the course of some great river which in tertiary times, billions of years ago, had poured through the city and into some prodigious subterranean abyss of the Great Barrier Range. Certainly this was above all a region of caves, gulfs, and underground secrets beyond human penetration. Looking back to our sensations, and recalling our dazedness at viewing this monstrous survival from eons we had thought pre-human, I can only wonder that we preserved the semblance of equilibrium which we did. Of course, we knew that something—chronology, scientific theory, or our own consciousness—was woefully awry. Yet we kept enough poise to guide the plane, observe many things quite minutely, and take a careful series of photographs, which may yet serve both us and the world in good stead. In my case, ingrained scientific habit may have helped. For above all my bewilderment and sense of menace, 
there burned a dominant curiosity to fathom more of this age-old secret, to know what sort of beings had built and lived in this incalculably gigantic place, and what relation to the general world of its time, or of other times, so unique a concentration of life could have had. For this place could be no ordinary city. It must have formed the primary nucleus and center of some archaic and unbelievable chapter of Earth's history, whose outward ramifications, recalled only dimly in the most obscure and distorted myths, had vanished utterly amidst the chaos of terrene convulsions, long before any human race we know had shambled out of apedom. Here sprawled a Paleogean megalopolis, compared with which the fabled Atlantis and Lemuria, Comorium and Uzeldarum, and Alathoe in the land of Lomar are recent things of today, not even of yesterday. A megalopolis ranking with such whispered pre-human blasphemies as Valusia, Raliaib in the land of Minar, and the nameless city of Arabia Deserta. As we flew above that tangle of stark titan towers, my imagination sometimes escaped all bounds and roved aimlessly in realms of fantastic associations, even weaving links betwixt this lost world and some of my own wildest dreams concerning the mad horror at the camp. The plane's fuel tank, in the interest of greater lightness, had been only partly filled, hence we now had to exert caution in our explorations. Even so, however, we covered an enormous extent of ground, or rather air, after swooping down to a level where the wind became virtually negligible. There seemed to be no limit to the mountain range, or to the length of the frightful stone city which bordered its inner foothills. Fifty miles of flight in each direction showed no major change in the labyrinth of rock and masonry that clawed up corpse-like through the eternal ice. There were, though, some highly absorbing diversifications, such as the carvings on the canyon where that broad river had once pierced the foothills and approached its sinking place in the Great Range. The headlands at the stream's entrance had been boldly carved into cyclopean pylons, and something about the ridgy, barrel-shaped designs stirred up oddly vague, hateful, and confusing semi-remembrances in both Danforth and me. We also came upon several star-shaped open places, evidently public squares, and noted various undulations in the terrain. Where a sharp hill rose, it was generally hollowed out into some sort of rambling stone edifice, but there were at least two exceptions. Of these latter, one was too badly weathered to disclose what had been on the jutting eminence, while the other still bore a fantastic conical monument carved out of the solid rock, and roughly resembling such things as the well-known snake tomb in the ancient valley of Petra. Flying inland from the mountains, we discovered that the city was not of infinite width, even though its length along the foothills seemed endless. After about thirty miles, the grotesque stone buildings began to thin out, and in ten more miles we came to an unbroken waste, virtually without signs of sentient artifice. The course of the river beyond the city seemed marked by a broad, depressed line, 
while the land assumed a somewhat greater ruggedness, seeming to slope slightly upward as it receded in the mist-hazed west. So far we had made no landing, yet to leave the plateau without an attempt at entering some of the monstrous structures would have been inconceivable. Accordingly, we decided to find a smooth place on the foothills near our navigable pass, there grounding the plain and preparing to do some exploration on foot. Though these gradual slopes were partly covered with a scattering of ruins, low flying soon disclosed an ampler number of possible landing places. Selecting that nearest to the pass, since our flight would be across the great range and back to camp, we succeeded about 12.30 p.m. in effecting a landing on a smooth, hard snowfield, wholly devoid of obstacles, and well adapted to a swift and favorable take-off later on. It did not seem necessary to protect the plain with a snow-banking for so brief a time, and in so comfortable an absence of high winds at this level. Hence we merely saw that the landing skis were safely lodged, and that the vital points of the mechanism were guarded against the cold. For our foot journey we discarded the heaviest of our flying furs, and took with us a small outfit consisting of pocket compass, hand camera, light provisions, voluminous notebooks and paper, geologist's hammer and chisel, specimen bags, coil of climbing rope, and powerful electric torches with extra batteries. This equipment having been carried in the plane on the chance that we might be able to effect a landing, take ground pictures, make drawings and topographical sketches, and obtain rock specimens from some bare slope, outcropping, or mountain cave. Fortunately, we had a supply of extra paper to tear up, place in a spare specimen bag, and use on the ancient principle of hare and hounds for marking our course in any interior mazes we might be able to penetrate. This had been brought in case we found some cave system with air quiet enough to allow such a rapid and easy method in place of the usual rock-chipping method of trailblazing. Walking cautiously downhill over the crusted snow toward the stupendous stone labyrinth that loomed against the opalescent west, we felt almost as keen a sense of imminent marvels as we had felt on approaching the unfathomed mountain pass four hours previously. True, we had become visually familiar with the incredible secret concealed by the barrier peaks, yet the prospect of actually entering primordial walls reared by conscious beings perhaps millions of years ago, before any known race of men could have existed, was none the less awesome and potentially terrible in its implications of cosmic abnormality. Though the thinness of the air at this prodigious altitude made exertion somewhat more difficult than usual, both Danforth and I found ourselves bearing up very well, and felt equal to almost any task which might fall to our lot. It took only a few steps to bring us to a shapeless ruin worn level with the snow, while ten or fifteen rods farther on there was a huge roofless rampart, still complete in its gigantic five-pointed outline, and rising to an irregular height of ten or eleven feet. For this latter we headed, and when at last we were actually able to touch its weathered cyclopean blocks, we felt that we had established an unprecedented and almost blasphemous link with forgotten eons normally close to our species. This rampart, shaped like a star, 
and perhaps three hundred feet from point to point, was built of Jurassic sandstone blocks of irregular size, averaging six by eight feet in surface. There was a row of arched loopholes or windows about four feet wide and five feet high, spaced quite symmetrically along the points of the star and at its inner angles, and with the bottoms about four feet from the glaciated surface. Looking through these, we could see that the masonry was fully five feet thick, that there were no partitions remaining within, and that there were traces of banded carvings or bar-reliefs on the interior walls, facts we had indeed guessed before when flying low over this rampart and others like it. Though lower parts must have originally existed, all traces of such things were now wholly obscured by the deep layer of ice and snow at this point. We crawled through one of the windows and vainly tried to decipher the nearly effaced mural designs, but did not attempt to disturb the glaciated floor. Our orientation flights had indicated that many buildings in the city proper were less ice-choked, and that we might perhaps find wholly clear interiors leading down to the true ground level if we entered those structures still roofed at the top. Before we left the rampart we photographed it carefully, and studied its mortarless cyclopean masonry with complete bewilderment. We wished that Pabodi were present, for his engineering knowledge might have helped us guess how such titanic rocks could have been handled in that unbelievably remote age when the city and its outskirts were built up. The half-mile walk downhill to the actual city, with the upper wind shrieking vainly and savagely through the skyward peaks in the background, was something of which the smallest details will always remain engraved on my mind. Only in fantastic nightmares could any human beings but Danforth and me conceive such optical effects. Between us and the churning vapors of the west lay that monstrous tangle of dark stone towers, its outre and incredible forms impressing us afresh at every new angle of vision. It was a mirage in solid stone— and were it not for the photographs, I would still doubt that such a thing could be. The general type of masonry was identical with that of the rampart we had examined, but the extravagant shapes which this masonry took in its urban manifestations were past all description. Even the pictures illustrate only one or two phases of its endless variety, preternatural massiveness, and utterly alien exoticism. There were geometrical forms for which a Euclid would scarcely find a name, cones of all degrees of irregularity and truncation, terraces of every sort of provocative disproportion, shafts with old bulbous enlargements, broken columns in curious groups, and five-pointed or five-ridged arrangements of mad grotesqueness. As we drew nearer, we could see beneath certain transparent parts of the ice-sheet, and detect some of the tubular stone bridges that connected the crazily sprinkled structures at various heights. Of orderly streets there seemed to be none, the only broad open swath being a mile to the left, where the ancient river had doubtless flowed through the town into the mountains. 
Our field glasses showed the external horizontal bands of nearly effaced sculptures and dot groups to be very prevalent, and we could half imagine what the city must have once looked like, even though most of the roofs and tower tops had necessarily perished. As a whole, it had been a complex tangle of twisted lanes and alleys, all of them deep canyons, and some little better than tunnels because of the overhanging masonry or overarching bridges. Now, outspread below us, it loomed like a dream fantasy against a westward mist through whose northern end the low reddish Antarctic sun of early afternoon was struggling to shine. And when, for a moment, that sun encountered a denser obstruction and plunged the scene into temporary shadow, the effect was subtly menacing in a way I could never hope to depict. Even the faint howling and piping of the unfelt wind in the great mountain passes behind us took on a wilder note of purposeful malignity. The last stage of our descent to the town was unusually steep and abrupt, and a rock outcropping at the edge where the grade changed led us to think that an artificial terrace had once existed there. Under the glaciation, we believed, there must be a flight of steps, or its equivalent. When, at last, we plunged into the town itself, clambering over fallen masonry and shrinking from the oppressive nearness and dwarfing height of omnipresent crumbling and pitted walls, our sensations again became such that I marveled at the amount of self-control we retained. Danforth was frankly jumpy and began making some offensively irrelevant speculations about the horror at the camp which I resented all the more, because I could not help sharing certain conclusions forced upon us by many features of this morbid survival from nightmare antiquity. The speculations worked on his imagination, too, for in one place, where a debris-littered alley turned a sharp corner, he insisted that he saw faint traces of ground markings which he did not like whilst elsewhere he stopped to listen to a subtle imaginary sound from some undefined point, a muffled musical piping, he said, not unlike that of the wind in the mountain caves, yet somehow disturbingly different. The ceaseless five-pointedness of the surrounding architecture and of the few distinguishable mural arabesques had a dimly sinister suggestiveness we could not escape and gave us a touch of terrible subconscious certainty concerning the primal entities which had reared and dwelt in this unhallowed place. Nevertheless, our scientific and adventurous souls were not wholly dead, and we mechanically carried out our program of chipping specimens from all the different rock types represented in the masonry. We wished a rather full set in order to draw better conclusions regarding the age of the place. Nothing in the greater outer walls seemed to date from later than the Jurassic or the Comanchian periods, nor was any piece of stone in the entire place of a greater recency than the Pliocene age. In stark certainty, we were wandering amidst a death which had reigned at least five hundred thousand years, and in all probability even longer. As we proceeded through this maze of stone-shadowed twilight, we stopped at all available apertures to study interiors and investigate entrance possibilities. Some were above our reach, 
while others led only into ice-choked ruins as unroofed and barren as the rampart on the hill. One, though spacious and inviting, opened on a seemingly bottomless abyss without visible means of descent. Now and then we had a chance to study the petrified wood of a surviving shutter, and were impressed by the fabulous antiquity implied in the still discernible grain. These things had come from Mesozoic gymnosperms and conifers, especially Cretaceous cycads, and from fan palms and early angiosperms of plainly tertiary date. Nothing definitely later than the Pliocene could be discovered. In the placing of these shutters, whose edges showed the former presence of queer and long-vanished hinges, usage seemed to be varied, some being on the outer and some on the inner side of the deep embrasures. They seemed to have become wedged in place, thus surviving the rusting of their former and probably metallic fixtures and fastenings. After a time we came across a row of windows, in the bulges of a colossal five-edged cone of undamaged apex, which led into a vast, well-preserved room with stone flooring. But these were too high in the room to permit descent without a rope. We had a rope with us, but did not wish to bother with this twenty-foot drop, unless obliged to, especially in this thin plateau air, where great demands were made upon the heart action. This enormous room was probably a hall or concourse of some sort, and our electric torches showed bold, distinct, and potentially startling sculptures arranged round the walls in broad horizontal bands separated by equally broad stripes of conventional arabesques. We took careful note of this spot, planning to enter here, unless a more easily gained interior were encountered. Finally, though, we did encounter exactly the opening we wished. An archway about six feet wide and ten feet high, marking the former end of an aerial bridge, which had spanned an alley about five feet above the present level of glaciation. These archways, of course, were flush with upper-story windows, and in this case one of the floors still existed. The building thus accessible was a series of rectangular terraces on our left facing westward. That across the alley, where the other archway yawned, was a decrepit cylinder with no windows and with a curious bulge about ten feet above the aperture. It was totally dark inside, and the archway seemed to open on a well of illimitable emptiness. Heaped debris made the entrance to the vast left-hand building doubly easy, yet for a moment we hesitated before taking advantage of the long-wished chance. For though we had penetrated into this tangle of archaic mystery, it required fresh resolution to carry us actually inside a complete and surviving building of a fabulous elder world whose nature was becoming more and more hideously plain to us. In the end, however, we made the plunge, and scrambled up over the rubble into the gaping embrasure. The floor beyond was of great slate slabs, and seemed to form the outlet of a long high corridor with sculptured walls. Observing the many inner archways which led off from it, and realizing the probable complexity of the nest of apartments within, we decided that we must begin our system of hare-and-hound trailblazing. Hitherto our compasses, 
together with frequent glimpses of the vast mountain range between the towers in our rear, had been enough to prevent our losing our way. But from now on, the artificial substitute would be necessary. Accordingly, we reduced our extra paper to shreds of suitable size, placed these in a bag to be carried by Danforth, and prepared to use them as economically as safety would allow. This method would probably gain us immunity from straying, since there did not appear to be any strong air currents inside the primordial masonry. If such should develop, or if our paper supply should give out, we would, of course, fall back on the more secure, though more tedious and retarding, method of rock-chipping. Just how extensive a territory we had opened up, it was impossible to guess without a trial. The close and frequent connection of the different buildings made it likely that we might cross from one to the other on bridges underneath the ice, except where impeded by local collapses and geologic rifts, for very little glaciation seemed to have entered the massive constructions. Almost all of the areas of transparent ice had revealed the submerged windows as tightly shuttered, as if the town had been left in that uniform state until the glacial sheet came to crystallize the lower part for all succeeding time. Indeed, one gained a curious impression that this place had been deliberately closed and deserted in some dim bygone eon, rather than overwhelmed by any sudden calamity or even gradual decay. Had the coming of the ice been foreseen, and had a nameless population left en masse to seek a less doomed abode? The precise physiographic conditions attending the formation of the ice sheet at this point would have to wait for later solution. It had not, very plainly, been a grinding drive. Perhaps the pressure of accumulated snows had been responsible, and perhaps some flood from the river or from the bursting of some ancient glacial dam in the Great Range, had helped to create the special state now observable. Imagination could conceive almost anything in connection with this place. Chapter 6 It would be cumbrous to give a detailed, consecutive account of our wanderings inside that cavernous eon-dead honeycomb of primal masonry, that monstrous lair of elder secrets which now echoed for the first time, after uncounted epochs, to the tread of human feet. This is especially true because so much of the horrible drama and revelation came from a mere study of the omnipresent mural carvings. Our flashlight photographs of those carvings will do much toward proving the truth of what we are now disclosing and it is lamentable that we had not a larger film supply with us. As it was, we made crude notebook sketches of certain salient features after all our films were used up. The building which we had entered was one of great size and elaborateness, and gave us an impressive notion of the architecture of that nameless geologic past. The inner partitions were less massive than the outer walls, but on the lower levels were excellently preserved. Labyrinthine complexity, involving curiously irregular difference in floor levels, characterized the entire arrangement, and we should certainly have been lost at the very outset, but for the trail of torn paper left behind us. We decided to explore the more decrepit upper parts first of all, hence climbed aloft in the maze for a distance of some one hundred feet, 
to where the topmost tier of chambers yawned snowily and ruinously open to the polar sky. Ascent was effected over the steep, transversely ribbed stone ramps or inclined planes, which everywhere served in lieu of stairs. The rooms we encountered were of all imaginable shapes and proportions, ranging from five-pointed stars to triangles and perfect cubes. It might be safe to say that their general average was about thirty by thirty feet in floor area and twenty feet in height, though many larger apartments existed. After thoroughly examining the upper regions and the glacial level, we descended, story by story, into the submerged part, where indeed we soon saw we were in a continuous maze of connected chambers and passages, probably leading over unlimited areas outside this particular building. The cyclopean massiveness and gigantism of everything about us became curiously oppressive, and there was something vaguely but deeply unhuman in all the contours, dimensions, proportions, decorations, and constructual nuances of the blasphemously archaic stonework. We soon realized, from what the carvings revealed, that this monstrous city was many million years old. We cannot yet explain the engineering principles used in the anomalous balancing and adjustment of the vast rock masses, though the function of the arch was clearly much relied on. The rooms we visited were wholly bare of all portable contents, a circumstance which sustained our belief in the city's deliberate desertion. The prime decorative feature was the almost universal system of mural sculpture, which tended to run in continuous horizontal bands three feet wide, and arranged from floor to ceiling in alternation with bands of equal width given over to geometrical arabesques. There were exceptions to this rule of arrangement, but its preponderance was overwhelming. Often, however, a series of smooth cartouches containing oddly patterned groups of dots would be sunk along one of the arabesque bands. The technique, we soon saw, was mature, accomplished, and aesthetically evolved to the highest degree of civilized mastery though utterly alien in every detail to any known art tradition of the human race. In delicacy of execution, no sculpture I have ever seen could approach it. The minutest details of elaborate vegetation or of animal life were rendered with astonishing vividness despite the bold scale of the carvings, while the conventional designs were marvels of skillful intricacy. The arabesques displayed a profound use of mathematical principles and were made up of obscurely symmetrical curves and angles based on the quantity of five. The pictorial bands followed a highly formalized tradition and involved a peculiar treatment of perspective, but had an artistic force that moved us profoundly, notwithstanding the intervening gulf of vast geological periods. Their method of design hinged on a singular juxtaposition of the cross-section of the two-dimensional silhouette, and embodied an analytical psychology beyond that of any known race of antiquity. It is useless to try to compare this art with any presented in our museums. Those who see our photographs will probably find its closest analogue in certain grotesque conceptions of the most daring futurists. The arabesque tracery consisted altogether of depressed lines, whose depth on unweathered walls varied from one to two inches. When cartouches with dot groups appeared, 
evidently as inscriptions in some unknown and primordial language and alphabet, the depression of the smooth surface was perhaps an inch and a half, and of the dot perhaps a half-inch more. The pictorial bands were in countersunk low relief, their background being depressed about two inches from the original wall surface. In some specimens, marks of a former coloration could be detected, though for the most part the untold eons had disintegrated and banished any pigments which may have been applied. The more one studied the marvelous technique, the more one admired the things. Beneath their strict conventionalization, one could grasp the minute and accurate observation and graphic skill of the artists, and indeed the very conventions themselves served to symbolize and accentuate the real essence or vital differentiation of every object delineated. We felt, too, that besides these recognizable excellences there were others looking beyond the reach of our perceptions. Certain touches here and there gave vague hints of latent symbols and stimuli, which another mental and emotional background and a fuller or different sensory equipment might have made of profound and poignant significance to us. The subject matter of the sculptures obviously came from the life of the vanished epoch of their creation, and contained a large proportion of evident history. It is this abnormal historic-mindedness of the primal race, a chance circumstance operating through coincidence miraculously in our favor, which made the carvings so awesomely informative to us, and which caused us to place their photography and transcription above all other considerations. In certain rooms, the dominant arrangement was varied by the presence of maps, astronomical charts, and other scientific designs of an enlarged scale, these things giving a naive and terrible corroboration to what we gathered from the pictorial friezes and dados. In hinting at what the whole revealed, I can only hope that my account will not arouse a curiosity greater than sane caution on the part of those who believe me at all. It would be tragic if any were to be allured to that realm of death and horror by the very warning meant to discourage them. Interrupting these sculptured walls were high windows and massive twelve-foot doorways, both now and then retaining the petrified wooden blanks, elaborately carved and polished, of the actual shutters and doors. All metal fixtures had long ago vanished. Some of the doors remained in place, and had to be forced aside as we progressed from room to room. Window frames with odd transparent panes, mostly elliptical, survived here and there, though in no considerable quantity. There were also frequent niches of great magnitude, generally empty, but once in a while containing some bizarre object carved from green soapstone, which was either broken or perhaps held too inferior to warrant removal. Other apertures were undoubtedly connected with bygone mechanical facilities, heating, lighting, and the like, of a sort suggested in many of the carvings. Ceilings tended to be plain, but had sometimes been inlaid with green soapstone or other tiles, mostly fallen now. Floors were also paved with such tiles, though plain stonework predominated. As I have said, all furniture and other movables were absent but the sculptures gave a clear idea of the strange devices which once filled these tomb-like echoing rooms. Above the glacial sheet, the floors were generally thick with detritus, litter, and debris, 
but farther down this condition decreased. In some of the lower chambers and corridors there was little more than gritty dust or ancient incrustations, while occasional areas had an uncanny air of newly swept immaculateness. Of course, where rifts or collapses had occurred, the lower levels were as littered as the upper ones. A central court, as in other structures we had seen from the air, saved the inner regions from total darkness, so that we seldom had to use our electric torches in the upper rooms except when studying sculptured details. Below the ice-cap, however, the twilight deepened, and in many parts of the tangled ground level there was an approach to absolute blackness. To form even a rudimentary idea of our thoughts and feelings as we penetrated this eon-silent maze of unhuman masonry, one must correlate a hopelessly bewildering chaos of fugitive moods, memories, and impressions. The sheer appalling antiquity and lethal desolation of the place were enough to overwhelm almost any sensitive person, but added to these elements were the recent unexplained horror at the camp, and the revelations all too soon affected by the terrible mural sculptures around us. The moment we came upon a perfect section of carving, where no ambiguity of interpretation could exist, it took only a brief study to give us the hideous truth, a truth which it would be naive to claim Danforth and I had not independently suspected before, though we had carefully refrained from even hinting it to each other. There could now be no further merciful doubt about the nature of the beings which had built and inhabited this monstrous dead city millions of years ago, when man's ancestors were primitive archaic mammals, and vast dinosaurs roamed the tropical steppes of Europe and Asia. We had previously clung to a desperate alternative, and insisted, each to himself, that the omnipresence of the five-pointed motives meant only some cultural or religious exaltation of the archaean natural object which had so patently embodied the quality of five-pointedness, as the decorative motives of Minoan Crete exalted the sacred bull, those of Egypt the scarabaeus, those of Rome the wolf and the eagle, and those of various savage tribes some chosen totem animal. But this lone refuge was now stripped from us, and we were forced to face definitely the reason-shaking realization which the reader of these pages had doubtless long ago anticipated. I can scarcely bear to write it down in black and white even now, and perhaps that will not be necessary. The things once rearing and dwelling in this frightful masonry in the age of dinosaurs were not indeed dinosaurs, but far worse. Mere dinosaurs were new and almost brainless objects, but the builders of this city were wise and old, and had left certain traces in rocks even then laid down well nigh a thousand million years, rocks laid down before the true life of earth had advanced beyond plastic groups of cells. Rocks laid down before the true life of earth had existed at all. They were the makers and enslavers of that life, and above all doubt the originals of the fiendish elder myths which things like the narcotic manuscripts and the necronomicon affrightedly hint about. They were the great old ones that had filtered down from the stars when earth was young, the beings whose substance an alien evolution had shaped, 
and whose powers were such as this planet had never bred. And to think that only the day before, Danforth and I had actually looked upon fragments of their millennially fossilized substance, and that poor Lake and his party had seen their complete outlines. It is, of course, impossible for me to relate in proper order the stages by which we picked up what we know of that monstrous chapter of pre-human life. After the first shock of the certain revelation, we had to pause a while to recuperate, and it was fully three o'clock before we got started on our actual tour of systematic research. The sculptures in the building we entered were of relatively late date, perhaps two million years ago, as checked up by geological, biological, and astronomical features, and embodied an art which would be called decadent in comparison with that of specimens we found in older buildings after crossing bridges under the glacial sheet. One edifice hewn from the solid rock seemed to go back forty, or possibly even fifty million years, to the lower Eocene or Upper Cretaceous, and contained bas-reliefs of an artistry surpassing anything else, with one tremendous exception that we encountered. That was, we have since agreed, the oldest domestic structure we traversed. Were it not for the support of those photographs soon to be made public, I could refrain from telling what I found and inferred, lest I be confined as a madman. Of course, the infinite early parts of the patchwork tale, representing the pre-terrestrial life of the star-headed beings on other planets, in other galaxies, and in other universes, can readily be interpreted as the fantastic mythology of those beings themselves. Yet such parts themselves involve designs and diagrams so uncannily close to the latest findings of mathematics and astrophysics that I scarcely know what to think. Let others judge when they see the photographs I shall publish. Naturally, no one set of carvings which we encountered told more than a fraction of any connected story, nor did we even begin to come upon the various stages of that story in their proper order. Some of the vast rooms were independent units, so far as the designs were concerned, whilst in other cases a continuous chronicle would be carried through a series of rooms and corridors. The best of the maps and diagrams were on the walls of a frightful abyss below even the ancient ground level, a cavern perhaps two hundred feet square and sixty feet high, which had almost undoubtedly been an educational center of some sort. There were many provoking repetitions of the same material in different rooms and buildings, since certain chapters of experience and certain summaries or phases of racial history had evidently been favorites with different decorators or dwellers. Sometimes, though, variant versions of the same theme proved useful in settling debatable points and filling up gaps. I still wonder that we deduced so much in the short time at our disposal. Of course, we even now have only the barest outline, and much of that was obtained later on from a study of the photographs and sketches we made. It may be the effect of this later study, the revived memories and vague impressions acting in conjunction with his general sensitiveness, and with that final supposed horror glimpse, whose essence he will not reveal even to me, which has been the immediate source of Danforth's present breakdown. But it had to be, for we could not issue our warning intelligently without the fullest possible information, 
and the issuance of that warning is a prime necessity. Certain lingering influences in that unknown Antarctic world of disordered time and alien natural law make it imperative that further exploration be discouraged. Chapter 7 The full story, so far as deciphered, will eventually appear in an official bulletin of Miskatonic University. Here I shall sketch only the salient highlights in a formless, rambling way. Myth or otherwise, the sculptures told of the coming of those star-headed things to the nascent lifeless earth out of cosmic space, their coming and the coming of many other alien entities such as at certain times embark upon spatial pioneering. They seemed able to traverse the interstellar ether on their vast membranous wings, thus oddly confirming some curious hill folklore long ago told me by an antiquarian colleague. They had lived under the sea a good deal, building fantastic cities and fighting terrific battles with nameless adversaries by means of intricate devices employing unknown principles of energy. Evidently their scientific and mechanical knowledge far surpassed man's today, though they made use of its more widespread and elaborate forms only when obliged to. Some of their sculptures suggested that they had passed through a stage of mechanized life on other planets, but had receded upon finding its effects emotionally unsatisfying. Their preternatural toughness of organization and simplicity of natural wants made them peculiarly able to live on a high plane without the more specialized fruits of artificial manufacture, and even without garments, except for occasional protection against the elements. It was under the sea, at first for food and later for other purposes, that they first created earth life, using available substances according to long-known methods. The more elaborate experience came after the annihilation of various cosmic enemies. They had done the same thing on other planets, having manufactured not only necessary foods, but certain multicellular protoplasmic masses capable of molding their tissues into all sorts of temporary organs under hypnotic influence, and thereby forming ideal slaves to perform the heavy work of the community. These viscous masses were without doubt what Abdul Alhazred whispered about as the Shoggoths in his frightful Necronomicon, though even that mad Arab had not hinted that any existed on earth except in the dreams of those who had chewed a certain alkaloidal herb. When the star-headed old ones on this planet had synthesized their simple food forms and bred a good supply of Shoggoths, they allowed other cell forms to develop into other forms of animal and vegetable life for sundry purposes, extirpating any whose presence became troublesome. With the aid of the Shoggoths, whose expansions could be made to lift prodigious weights, the small, low cities under the sea grew to vast and imposing labyrinths of stone, not unlike those which later rose on land. Indeed, the highly adaptable old ones had lived much on land in other parts of the universe, and probably retained many traditions of land construction. As we studied the architecture of all these sculptured Paleogean cities, including that whose eon-dead corridors we were even then traversing, we were impressed by a curious coincidence which we have not yet tried to explain, even to ourselves. The tops of the buildings, which in the actual city around us had, of course, been weathered into sharpless ruins ages ago, 
were clearly displayed in the bar-reliefs, and showed vast clusters of needle-like spires, delicate finials on certain cone and pyramid apexes, and tiers of thin, horizontal scalloped discs, capping cylindrical shafts. This is exactly what we had seen in that monstrous and portentous mirage, cast by a dead city, whence such skyline features had been absent for thousands and tens of thousands of years, which loomed on our ignorant eyes across the unfathomed mountains of madness, as we first approached poor Lake's ill-fated camp. Of the life of the old ones, both under the sea and after part of them migrated to land, volumes could be written. Those in shallow water had continued the fullest use of the eyes at the ends of their five main head tentacles, and had practiced the arts of sculpture and of writing in quite the usual way, the writing accomplished with the stylus on waterproof waxen surfaces. Those lower down on the ocean depths, though they used a curious phosphorescent organism to furnish light, pierced out their vision with obscure special senses operating through the prismatic cilia on their heads, senses which rendered all the old ones partly independent of light in emergencies. Their forms of sculpture and writing had changed curiously during the descent, embodying certain apparently chemical coating processes, probably to secure phosphorescence, which the bas-reliefs could not make clear to us. The beings moved in the sea partly by swimming, using the lateral crinoid arms, and partly by wriggling with the lower tier of tentacles containing the pseudo-feet. Occasionally they accomplished long swoops with the auxiliary use of two or more sets of their fan-like folding wings. On land they locally used the pseudo-feet but now and then flew to great heights or over long distances with their wings. The many slender tentacles into which the crinoid arms branched were infinitely delicate, flexible, strong, and accurate in muscular nervous coordination, ensuring the utmost skill and dexterity in all artistic and other manual operations. The toughness of the things was almost incredible. Even the terrific pressure of the deepest sea-bottoms appeared powerless to harm them. Very few seemed to die at all except by violence, and their burial places were very limited. The fact that they covered their vertically inhumed dead with five-pointed inscribed mounds set up thoughts in Danforth and me which made a fresh pause and recuperation necessary after the sculptures revealed it. The beings multiplied by means of spores, like vegetable pteridophytes, as Lake had suspected. But owing to their prodigious toughness and longevity, and consequent lack of replacement needs, they did not encourage the long-scale development of new prothalia, except when they had new regions to colonize. The young matured swiftly, and received an education evidently beyond any standard we can imagine. The prevailing intellectual and aesthetic life was highly evolved, and produced a tenaciously enduring set of customs and institutions, which I shall describe more fully in my coming monograph. These varied slightly according to sea or land residence, but had the same foundations and essentials. Though able, like vegetables, to derive nourishment from inorganic substances, they vastly preferred organic and especially animal food. They ate uncooked marine life under the sea, but cooked their viands on land. 
They hunted game and raised meat herds, slaughtering with sharp weapons whose odd marks on certain fossil bones our expedition had noted. They resisted all ordinary temperatures marvelously, and in their natural state could live in water down to freezing. When the great chill of the Pleistocene drew on, however, nearly a million years ago, the land-dwellers had to resort to special measures, including artificial heating, until at last the deadly cold appears to have driven them back into the sea. For their prehistoric flights through cosmic space, legend said, they absorbed certain chemicals and became almost independent of eating, breathing, or heat conditions. But by the time of the great cold they had lost track of the method. In any case, they could not have prolonged the artificial state indefinitely without harm. Being non-pairing and semi-vegetable in structure, the old ones had no biological basis for the family phase of mammal life, but seemed to organize large households on the principles of comfortable space utility and, as we deduced from the pictured occupations and diversions of co-dwellers, congenial mental association. In furnishing their homes, they kept everything in the center of the huge rooms, leaving all the wall spaces free for decorative treatment. Lighting, in the case of the land inhabitants, was accomplished by a device probably electrochemical in nature. Both on land and under water, they used curious tables, chairs, and couches like cylindrical frames, for they rested and slept upright with folded-down tentacles, and racks for hinged sets of dotted surfaces forming their books. The government was evidently complex and probably socialistic, though no certainties in this regard could be deduced from the sculptures we saw. There was extensive commerce, both local and between different cities, certain small, flat counters, five-pointed and inscribed, serving as money. Probably the smaller of the various greenish soapstones found by our expedition were pieces of such currency. Though the culture was mainly urban, some agriculture and much stock-raising existed. Mining and a limited amount of manufacturing were also practiced. Travel was very frequent, but permanent migration seemed relatively rare except for the vast colonizing movements by which the race expanded. For personal locomotion, no external aid was used, since in land, air, and water movement alike, the old ones seemed to possess excessively vast capacities for speed. Loads, however, were drawn by beasts of burden, shogoths under the sea, and a curious variety of primitive vertebrates in the latter years of land existence. These vertebrates, as well as an infinity of other life forms, animal and vegetable, marine, terrestrial, and aerial, were the products of unguided evolution acting on life cells made by the old ones, but escaping beyond their radius of attention. They had been suffered to develop unchecked, because they had not come in conflict with the dominant beings. Bothersome forms, of course, were mechanically exterminated. It interested us to see in some of the very last and most decadent sculptures a shambling primitive mammal, used sometimes for food and sometimes as an amusing buffoon by the land-dwellers, whose vaguely simian and human foreshadowings were unmistakable. In the building of land cities, the huge stone blocks of the high towers were generally lifted by vast-winged pterodactyls of a species heretofore unknown to paleontology. 
The persistence with which the old ones survived various geological changes and convulsions of the Earth's crust was little short of miraculous. Though few or none of their first cities seemed to have remained beyond the Archean age, there was no interruption in their civilization or in the transmission of their records. Their original place of advent to the planet was the Antarctic Ocean, and it is likely that they came not long after the matter forming the moon was wrenched from the neighboring South Pacific. According to one of the sculptured maps, the whole globe was then under water, with stone cities scattered farther and farther from the Antarctic as eons passed. Another map shows a vast bulk of dry land around the South Pole, where it is evident that some of the beings made experimental settlements, though their main centers were transferred to the nearest sea bottom. Later maps, which display the land mass as cramping and drifting and sending certain detached parts northward, uphold in a striking way the theories of continental drift lately advanced by Taylor, Wegener, and Jolly. With the upheaval of new land in the South Pacific, tremendous events began. Some of the marine cities were hopelessly shattered, yet that was not the worst misfortune. Another race, a land race of beings shaped like octopi and probably corresponding to fabulous pre-human spawn of Cthulhu, soon began filtering down from cosmic infinity and precipitated a monstrous war, which for a time drove the old ones wholly back to the sea, a colossal blow in view of the increasing land settlements. Later peace was made, and the new lands were given to the Cthulhu spawn, whilst the old ones held the sea and the older lands. New land cities were founded, the greatest of them in the Antarctic, for this region of first arrival was sacred. From then on, as before, the Antarctic remained the center of the old one's civilization, and all the cities built there by the Cthulhu spawn were blotted out. Then, suddenly, the lands of the Pacific sank again, taking with them the frightful stone city of Rallier and all the cosmic octopi, so that the old ones were again supreme on the planet, except for one shadowy fear about which they did not like to speak. At a rather later age, their cities dotted all the land and water areas of the globe, Hence the recommendation in my coming monograph that some archaeologists make systemic borings with Pabodi's type of apparatus in certain widely separated regions. The steady trend down the ages was from water to land, a movement encouraged by the rise of new land masses, though the ocean was never wholly deserted. Another cause of the landward movement was the new difficulty in breeding and managing the Shogoths, upon which successful sea-life depended. With the march of time, as the sculptures sadly confessed, the art of creating new life from inorganic matter had been lost, so that the old ones had to depend on the molding of forms already in existence. On land the great reptiles proved highly tractable, but the Shogoths of the sea, reproducing by fission and acquiring a dangerous degree of accidental intelligence, presented for a time a formidable problem. They had always been controlled through the hypnotic suggestions of the old ones, and had modeled their tough plasticity into various useful temporary limbs and organs. But now their self-modeling powers were sometimes exercised independently, and in various imitative forms implanted by past suggestion. 
They had, it seems, developed a semi-stable brain, whose separate and occasionally stubborn volition echoed the will of the old ones without always obeying it. Sculptured images of these Chagoths filled Danforth and me with horror and loathing. They were normally shapeless entities, composed of a viscous jelly, which looked like an agglutinization of bubbles, and each averaged about fifteen feet in diameter when a sphere. They had, however, a constantly shifting shape and volume, throwing out temporary developments or forming apparent organs of sight, hearing, and speech in imitation of their masters, either spontaneously or according to suggestion. They seemed to have been peculiarly intractable toward the middle of the Permian Age, perhaps one hundred and fifty million years ago, when a veritable war of resubjugation was waged upon them by the marine old ones. Pictures of this war, and of the headless, slime-coated fashion in which the Sagoths typically left their slain victims, held a marvelously fearsome quality, despite the intervening abyss of untold ages. The old ones had used curious weapons of molecular and atomic disturbances against the rebel entities, and in the end had achieved a complete victory. Thereafter, the sculptures showed a period in which Sagoths were tamed and broken by armed old ones, as the wild horses of the American West were tamed by cowboys. Though during the rebellion the Chagoss had shown an ability to live out of water, this transition was not encouraged, since their usefulness on land would hardly have been commensurate with the trouble of their management. During the Jurassic Age the Old Ones met fresh adversity in the form of a new invasion from outer space, this time by half-fungus, half-crustacean creatures, creatures undoubtedly the same as those figuring in certain whispered hill legends of the north, and remembered in the Himalayas as the Migo, or abominable snowmen. To fight these beings, the old ones attempted for the first time since their terrene advent to sally forth again into the planetary ether, but, despite all traditional preparations, found it no longer possible to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Whatever the old secret of interstellar travel had been, it was now definitely lost to the race. In the end, the Migro drove the old ones out of all the northern lands, though they were powerless to disturb those in the sea. Little by little, the slow retreat of the elder race to their original Antarctic habitat was beginning. It was curious to note from the pictured battles that both the Cthulhu spawn and the Miko seemed to have been composed of matter more widely different from that which we know than was the substance of the old ones. They were able to undergo transformations and reintegrations impossible for their adversaries, and seem, therefore, to have originally come from even remoter gulfs of the cosmic space. The old ones, but for their abnormal toughness and peculiar vital properties, were strictly material, and must have had their absolute origin within the known space-time continuum, whereas the first sources of the other beings can only be guessed at with bated breath. All this, of course, assuming that the non-terrestrial linkages and the anomalies ascribed to the invading foes are not pure mythology. Conceivably, the old ones might have invented a cosmic framework to account for their occasional defeats, since historical interest and pride obviously formed their chief psychological element. 
It is significant that their annals fail to mention many advanced and potent races of beings whose mighty cultures and towering cities figure persistently in certain obscure legends. The changing state of the world through long geologic ages appeared with startling vividness in many of the sculptured maps and scenes. In certain cases, existing science will require revision, while in other cases its bold deductions are magnificently confirmed. As I have said, the hypothesis of Taylor, Wegener, and Jolly that all the continents are fragments of an original Antarctic landmass which cracked from centrifugal force and drifted apart over a technically viscous lower surface, an hypothesis suggested by such things as the complementary outlines of Africa and South America, and the way the great mountain chains are rolled and shoved up, receives striking support from this uncanny source. Maps evidently showing the Carboniferous world of an hundred million or more years ago displayed significant rifts and chasms destined later to separate Africa from the once-continuous realms of Europe, then the Valusia of primal legend, Asia, the Americas, and the Antarctic continent. Other charts, and most significantly one in connection with the founding fifty million years ago of the vast dead city around us, showed all the present continents well differentiated, and in the latest discoverable specimen, dating perhaps from the Pliocene age, the approximate world of today appeared quite clearly, despite the linkage of Alaska with Siberia, of North America with Europe through Greenland, and of South America with the Antarctic continent through Graham Land. In the Carboniferous map, the whole globe ocean floor and rifted landmass alike bore symbols of the old one's vast stone cities, but in the later charts the gradual recession toward the Antarctic became very plain. The final Pliocene specimen showed no land cities except on the Antarctic continent and the tip of South America, nor any ocean cities north of the fiftieth parallel of south latitude. Knowledge and interest in the northern world, save for a study of coastlines probably made during long exploration flights on those fan-like membranous wings, had evidently declined to zero among the old ones. Destruction of cities to the upthrust of mountains, the centrifugal rending of continents, the seismic convulsions of land or sea bottom, and other natural causes, was a matter of common record, and it was curious to observe how fewer and fewer replacements were made as the ages wore on. The vast dead megalopolis that yawned around us seemed to be the last general center of the race, built early in the Cretaceous age after a titanic earth buckling had obliterated a still vaster predecessor not far distant. It appeared that this general region was the most sacred spot of all, where reputedly the first old ones had settled on a primal sea bottom. In the new city, many of whose features we could recognize in the sculptures, but which stretched fully a hundred miles along the mountain range in each direction beyond the farthest limits of our aerial survey, there were reputed to be preserved certain sacred stones forming part of the first sea-bottom city, which thrust up to light after long epochs in the course of the general crumbling of Strada.
Thank you, Bob. And thank you, Mr. Lovecraft. Oh, by the way, the music that takes us in and out of At the Mountains of Madness is from the Sinfonia Antarctica of Rafe Vaughn Williams. This is a concert rendering of Vaughn Williams' score for the 1946 British film Scott of the Antarctic. And yes, forgive me, when listing polar explorers last week, I foolishly failed to mention both Robert Falcon Scott and Ernest Shackleton. Bad, bad me. And that will be that for the week, children of the ice and snow and night. Next week, well, you know what, next week, when you leave the nook and tales to terrify tonight, when you cross the boundary between the district of wonders and the day-to-day world, please expect a shock. It's hot out there. But when you arrive home and slip asleep and the ice begins to form ahead, remember, the great old ones are wont to arise during the sleeping state. So remember that as you face the iridescent rising mists and face... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Well, pleasant dreams, hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.